you would, be turning in your Bibles to Luke chapter 1, um, as we continue to look at the Christmas story through the lens of the Gospel of Luke. And I want to remind you, remember, Luke has some unique things that he keys in on. He cares very much about the stories of individuals. So he tells a lot of stories of the people that have been involved in the redemptive story, particularly the birth of Christ. And we've already heard about Elizabeth and Zechariah who are going to show up again. And if you remember, uh, they too had an, a miraculous uh, pregnancy, right? They, they were barren, even though they were righteous, even though he was a high priest. Um, God was at work in them to prepare the way for the one who would prepare the way for the Lord to come. John was being formed in the womb. And if you remember, John prophesies in utero, which gives us a pretty interesting view of when life begins. He leaps, which causes Elizabeth to recognize that Mary, who's only been pregnant for a few days, maybe a week or so, carries within her the life that will change the entire world and the eternity for many people. And she recognizes that Mary is, in fact, pregnant with the Lord, and she uses that language. And you also remember that Mary herself, um, as her story begins, we, we remember that she's only somewhere between 12 and 14 years of age, which kind of makes us a little bit uncomfortable in our culture, but in their culture, it would not have been anything out of the ordinary. Uh, but she is chosen, right? She is selected. Why? She's only 12 or 14 years old. She couldn't have done that much in her life to earn the right to become the one who would carry Jesus, become the mother of Jesus, uh, the God-man. And so, so she is selected purely because it evidences the upside-down nature of the kingdom. This poor teenage girl who comes from a place that no one would have expected the Savior to come from. This place, Nazareth, in Galilee, which is completely opposite from where they would have thought he would have come from. They would have thought he would have come from Judah, and, and, and specifically in the Jerusalem area, it would have made more sense, had more fanfare even, if that's where he had come from. But again, all of this is pedagogical. All of this is teaching us that the nature of this kingdom is going to be radically different than any kingdom we have ever known. This king is going to be radically different than any king we've ever seen. We're going to hear some of that in Mary's song as she begins to sing about um, uh, not just Jesus, but about God who sent Jesus, which is going to be very important to us. I also want to remind you that, that in the conception of Christ, that what was going on there was a creative act. The Holy Spirit overshadows Mary, evidencing the presence of the Holy God, which is language that is used for the Holy of Holies. It's not a sexual act in the way that other ancient Near Eastern myths talk about God's procreating with humans. No, this is a creative act. God speaks Jesus into being. He's created, as we've said from the fancy theological term, ex nihilo, that means out of nothing. Now, a question did arise that I do want to address, which is a great question. Well, if that's the case, then how much of Mary's DNA is in Jesus? And my answer to that is, I don't know. Um, but what I do know is this, that there's two possibilities, I, I think, um, and, and so one is that God chose because he wanted to make sure that Jesus was perfect. Like, we know that Jesus was perfect, right? I mean, Scripture says that. He wanted to make sure that Jesus was perfect, so the creative act, she has literally no part in it other than being the host. And maybe you say, well, that's biologically impossible. Well, so is Immaculate Conception. 
so it's all miraculous, no matter what we say. So on the other side is that he, because of his holiness, made sure that any of her sin nature was purified in terms of when it came into contact with Christ. She is not made holy, or she is not purified in of herself, as some of our uh, brothers and sisters maybe look to her and think she was rendered holy. It makes sense that you would try to come to that conclusion to make it all work. But God doesn't seem to be interested in resolving all our questions and peccadillos and, and tensions. So either way, what happened was holy, and it was pure, and it was unique, and it was for Christ alone for us. And so we have this beautiful picture of creation, and we have this beautiful picture of God who is holy, and we have this beautiful picture of Him using the kind of individuals that you and I wouldn't pick. And that means He picks you and I who other people wouldn't necessarily pick. And so that's good news to us, that the upside-down nature of the kingdom means that there is no one who is beyond His reach. And to that, we should say amen. And so, Mary, after finding out that she is pregnant with the Lord, you remember, rushes off to see Elizabeth. It takes her three or four days to get there. And there's this moment where they are rejoicing at what God is doing in both of them. And so this is going to be an extension of that moment. Mary is going to compose a song. And she goes into worship in a way that's so beautiful that theologians cannot imagine that a 12 to 14 year old girl would write these words. In fact, they say it has to be added. Well, those theologians, I think, are wrong because she, being who she is and knowing what she knows, recognizes the beauty of God in all this. And that should be for us too. We too should be able to, in praise and worship, celebrate the goodness of God. I agree with Josh. It was a Real blessing to sit around last night and hear not just the staff, but there's significant others as well sharing how God had been good. And there's a lot of stories that really weren't all good, right? I mean, there's a lot of pain and just the recognition that God continues to pursue us, number one, when we don't want to be pursued. Some of us, if we're honest, we're like, hey, God, you can take a break. Like, there's some things going on in India I'm sure you could focus on for a second. I mean, there's stuff in, definitely in Newark. They don't have their stuff together. I mean, there's a lot of places you could look and just kind of maybe take a break on me for a second. And yet, he doesn't do that. He doesn't listen to us because we don't know. We don't know what's best for us, even though we'd like to be able to determine what's best for us. And so what we see is Mary break out into worship. And so uh, my hope for us this morning is that it will stir our hearts as well, that it would cause us to look at God who sends Jesus to save us to him not from him. So, the main thing you want to get out of this morning is that God is worthy to be magnified for his faithful fulfillment of his promises through Christ in our lives. God is more than worthy to be magnified by us because of all that he has done. The life that you have in you this morning is a gift. Don't mistake that. Don't take that for granted. This day was not promised to you. You've been given it as raw material to use for his glory. And the first question I'd like to ask us to, to be considering, and it's a great question for you to consider on this Lord's Day Sabbath and take time even as your family to talk about it, but what has happened in your life that would be worth magnifying? Even going so far as to celebrate in song. I feel fairly certain that the Okies will write a song sometime this afternoon, wherever they are, and that, that would be awesome. I'd love to hear it. But what is, what is so worthy of magnification that's gone on in your life that it would cause you to 
write poetry or write a song or just even tell someone else the story? What's worth sharing with others? I love this quote by St. Augustine, or Augustine, depending on which part of Naples you come from, I guess. Uh, he says, for those who would learn God's way, humility is the first thing, humility is the second, and humility is the third. Right? And so it is very important for us. What we're going to see in Mary and what we saw in Elizabeth is just a great humility. That's what Luke keeps kind of uh, pointing out about the various individuals that he points out is all of these folks are humble. The people who God uses are humble. Right? We would do well to recognize the necessity to be humble because remember, the antithesis to faith is what? Pride. Not doubt. It's not wondering. It's not questioning. It is pride. It is for you to think that you can save yourself or there's anything in you that makes God love you instead of Him choosing of His own will to love you, which is even greater, as it turns out, given that we are enemies. So it would, it would do our hearts well to, to approach this text and approach this season, approach each other with great humility. Um, I, I could go on and on about how this season has exposed us in so many ways, right? This whole election cycle, but even before that, I mean, there's all kinds of things that have exposed in us a lack of humility and care for one another that is just heartbreaking. We think we know so much. And yet, as we've been reminded by Paul in 1 Corinthians 13, even that you only see through a, a mirror dimly or a glass half darkly. And so may we have the same humility that Mary exhibits as she offers herself up. So if you would turn to the text, we're going to read the first few verses. And this is, this is the first part of Mary's song where she gives personal reasons for the magnification of the Lord. If you would give your attention to the reading of God's Word. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. Mary begins her song much in the same way the psalmist begin many of the psalms. You might could think of Psalm 108 where it begins, My heart is steadfast, O God, I will sing and make melody with all my being. This is why worship is so important to us as people and by nature of it being a focus on the supernatural and on things that are not natural to us, why so often we struggle to worship, right? C.S. Lewis in his little book, Letters to Malcolm, when he talks about prayer, when he talks about singing, he's all the time talking about he hated singing and he hated praying. You may think, well, that's Sounds like me, actually. Uh, or some of you may say, well, he's not a very good Christian. C.S. Lewis would say, no, I wasn't. It's okay. Um, but what he says is, is that the, the fact that those things are hard in his natural flesh reflect the necessity to actually do them. It is good for us. Don't you think that Satan would want to attack you at the very place where you could grow and you could glorify God? If you were Satan, where would you, how would you attack? It was interesting, I went to Macon on a couple of different occasions this last week uh, for different things, and I was spending time with a friend of mine who is struggling with deep anxiety. And he, it's, it's, it's kind of an OCD-based anxiety, and right now one of his triggers is receipts. Okay? 
And so we had this great conversation over dinner at my favorite pizza place in the world, Ingleside Village Pizza. And, and they didn't pay me to say that, but yeah, it just is. And so we, we had this great conversation. He's deeply encouraged. And lo and behold, we get to the counter. And what do you think? His bill was wrong. Bill was wrong. And he, the guy is so kind about it. He says, listen, I'll just comp what we didn't charge you for. And that, that's, that can't happen for my family. And he just, he, you could just see him starting to tighten up. And the guy ended up uh, charging him for it. And what do you think happened when he charged him for it? Bill wasn't right. As we get outside, he's looking at the receipt, and it's not right. So we have to go back inside and, and get it all squared away. And his wife, as she's standing with me outside, is just, and this may seem small to you, but there's a lot more to it uh, that goes into this, but it, it was just grief-stricken. And when he comes out, he looks just defeated. He just couldn't get out from under the weight of it. And I said, before you guys go getting too upset, if you were Satan, what would you have done? If you had just seen your enemy encouraged and beginning to magnify and glorify the Lord's goodness, how quickly would you strike? Immediately. I said, okay. So don't lose your sense of humor. Know that this actually is evidence of the Lord at work. And God is doing good things. And I think that was actually more encouraging to them than all that we talked about in dinner. Just this example, this opportunity to show them that it is not... It's not that they're being destroyed. Actually, the Lord is using even this evil to build them up and show him himself in a unique and way worthy of magnitude. And so what we have here is Mary humbling herself and saying, my soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God my Savior. Now, this is really important. Notice who she's turning to. Who's this song about? Is it about Jesus or about God? This song is actually about God. And she refers to God as Savior, which really begins to make a, an important impression as to who Jesus is later on, because it's actually a declaration that Jesus will be God. And so she recognizes that God is the one who sends Jesus. God is the one who sets these promises in motion. It is God who is redeeming. I've said this to you all before. We're not being saved from God. We're being saved to God. Right? Yes, his wrath you're being delivered from. But he is choosing not to pour his wrath on you. He pours it instead on Christ so that you can be declared son and daughter. And Mary recognizes this straight away. It is God who is doing these things. This is from the Lord. And we would do well to kind of look deep in our own theology and ask, where are the places that I've kind of set up a, a false Theology that says I'm being saved from God. I need to be afraid of God. I need, I need, always need Jesus to hide. No, remember what Jesus did is he, according to Hebrews, he opened the way for us to come boldly before the throne of grace to receive everything we need, both in a time of trouble and in a time of needing grace. Paul says it as well in Romans 5 that Jesus has done what he's done so that you can stand in grace before the Lord. That is an amazing thing that I don't think, I, I, just confessionally myself, I don't always get the richness and beauty of, probably because I just don't hardly think about it. 
I don't think about that the God who created this universe has welcomed me into his presence, not for the purpose of telling me all that I have done wrong. No, but for the purpose of saying, I love you and you are mine. And you are an heir to everything that is in creation. Would that we could have the same attitude and say, my soul magnifies the Lord. So Mary is showing us this 12 to 14 year old girl, which is why the theologians just can't get it. If you've ever done youth ministry, and I did middle school youth ministry, it's hard to imagine. I give you that. Right? And that's the supernatural nature of all of this. But here she is teaching us something very beautiful that first and foremost we need to recognize it is God who is at work and who began his work at Genesis 1. And she goes on, and it's very personal for her. He says, she says, for he has looked on this humble, the humble estate of his servant. Right? Matt, Mary has a very clear understanding of who God is and who she is. She's not thinking that it is because she's great that she has been chosen. She's not exalting herself in any way, shape, or form. This is, it's sometimes confusing because she says, I'll be blessed over the generations. But what she's saying is, I'll be blessed because of God's salvation, not because of who I am, but because of what God is doing in and through his people. And so she has a very clear understanding of the reality. Susan and I were in Birmingham it's a month I've traveled in a long time. I've been in Macon, I've been in Birmingham. I'm just glad to be home. But we were in Birmingham for a concert, and we were at Second and Charles. And uh, you know how at Second and Charles they have those, if you've ever been in, they have that giant Lego thing that kids can kind of sift through and get different pieces. And there was a father and son at, at that Lego stand. Now, this is not a preacher story. This is a true story. And uh, so I'm standing there looking at the books, and, and uh, I overhear the son say to the father, he was probably about 10 years old, he says, Dad, I, I just really like some money to buy some Lego pieces. And Dad, as, as dads are wont to do, said, well, son, I've been giving you money. You get an allowance, but you guys, you blow through your money as soon as you get it, and you blow it on stuff that, that you don't really, don't last. Instead of you saving your money, so you get what you really wanted. That's what the kid said. I almost gave the kid a high five. The kid says, Dad, you pointing out my reality right now is really hurting. <laughs> Dad said, well, hate it for you. <laughs> I just cracked up laughing. What a great, what, what an honest answer. Where'd that 10-year-old get that from? Uh, he said, you pointing out my reality is really hurtful. I feel like that's the majority of what I do as a pastor. Is I, I'm, I'm just pointing out your realities and just, just, just kicking the almond seeds most of the time. So, but, but, but we don't, and, and the point is, we don't really want to know what's true. We don't want to know the reality. Right? We have all these distorted views of ourselves. I was talking to somebody out front and just how, how hard it is sometimes to hear those closest to you shatter that view. Right? You're not as awesome as you thought you were. Uh, or just point out that no, in fact, you are arrogant. Uh, or no, in fact, you are not good at these things. Or the, you know, it's hard for you. But it's the truth that sets us free. And how beautiful is it for someone to say that to us and say, but, but even still, I'm willing to stand next to you and stand with you. Isn't that what God says? You are my enemy. You are not worthy to be anywhere near me, and yet I'm going to make a way that you can come all the way in. And you can call me Abba, which means Daddy. And you can receive from me all of the blessings that creation has to offer you and even greater heaven has to offer you. And eternity has to offer you. 
Would that we could get past being so afraid of being wrong. Would that we could get past so afraid of being known. We're not good at everything. We're not right about everything. We don't know everything. It's okay. You get an eternity to learn. You get an eternity to explore. You get an eternity to take heart and magnify that. The Mary is teaching us about humility, just as St. Augustine said. The whole way in is humility first, humility second, humility third. And then she goes on to say that this is a truth that will actually bless the generations. This is a truth that is worth sharing with other people. Listen to what Charles Simeon says about this passage. He says, here we behold a blessed mixture of admiration, gratitude, and joy. It is evident that her mind was full of her subject. The abruptness of her speech shows that she had mused in her heart till the fire kindled and then spoke with her tongue. We would do well to muse in our hearts until the fires are kindled, the goodness of God and all that he does for us. And really muse in our hearts about all that is coming. It's okay to hope. It's okay to look forward so that we can live better between the now and the not yet. So the question that I have for you, and again, these are great questions for you to consider together as friends and family, but what are some ways in which God has been specifically merciful and gracious to you? What are some ways in which God has been specifically merciful and gracious to you in the same way that so that you could have personal reasons to magnify the Lord. We all have them if we take the time to consider them. And it is an important thing to do that. It's important for us to take stock. Again, if you turn back to the text, let's look at verses 51 through 56. This is the second part of Mary's song where she gives prophetic reasons for why the Lord is worthy to be magnified. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thought of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. Mary remained with her about three months and returned to her house. So what we have here is that Mary begins to sound like an Old Testament prophet. This is also one of the reasons that many of the theologians really wonder, how could she have written this song? That means she would have had to know the major and minor prophets. That does not have been uh, strange. It would have been a little bit strange in her culture for a girl to know this. But again, this is the upside-down nature of the kingdom that God is saying those at the margins, children and women, old and young, are welcome in my kingdom. And not only welcome, they will be instruments by which I tell my story through Jesus. And so she is using language that reminds us of what the prophets talk about. Remember how all the prophets talk about the, the, the differences and how the poor should be treated. Now, is it bad to be rich? No. Remember Paul's words in 1 Timothy 6. If you're going to be rich, that's fine. Just remember who gave it to you and remember the poor. One time when we were in, in Macon, we were at a, a small Presbyterian church that met in a coffee shop. And one year we decided to do kind of like what we did here this year, the giving tree. And it was for the industrial children's homes. 
Now, we made a pretty critical error in that we didn't set any kind of limit on what they could ask for. And so we just said, hey, you know, we'd like to buy some gifts for the kids, so what, what would they like? And what do you think they asked for? iPods and, and computers and all kind of really expensive stuff. And so we all had this, this, this moral dilemma because we had thrown it out there. Do we meet all these needs? As we talked about it, we came to the conclusion, do we want to tell them, do we want to do this, basically? Say to them, remember, you are poor. Would you buy those things for your kids? Is it, is it only for the rich to be able to ask for certain things? Should the poor only be allowed to choose from the bottom shelf? The knockoff brands, if they're given a choice? It really hit us all that we didn't want to send the message, remember, you are poor and different. And who are you to ask for something? Now, I can't tell you that we bought computers for every kid, <laughs> but we did, we did a lot. And so it's, it's difficult, isn't it, oftentimes, that we, we, in and of our own hearts, forget God's great care for the poor. And how there's a lot of ways in which we continue to um, we continue to benefit from that divide. And we don't think through all the ways in which we're communicating certain things to people. And so, you know, our giving tree, we, we wisely set limits to some extent. And, and you know, those, those gifts were um, intended to be a blessing to those children. I want to say thank you. I, I don't know the final total. I think all the gifts were taken care of. Uh, there is a massive, it looks like a toy store in our office right now. But thank you so much for participating and communicating to those kids that somebody cares. And, that, and this is a, yes, we could say, but yeah, we're just showing them we care materialistically. But no, Josh and them go every uh, month to share the gospel. So yes, there's a tangible aspect to that as well. It's okay for kids to want toys and to know joy and play. So thank you so much for meeting all those needs. It was a circus. I mean, we had, you know, stuff come in at the end. Uh, uh, actually, new um, children come in as, as women came into the extension. You were able to meet those needs. You showed great generosity. And we need to be praying that it's not just that they would receive gifts, but that they would understand the reason for the gifts being given and the gift giver. Not you, but God who is generous to us. And he doesn't say to us, remember, it is you who are poor. No, he says, remember, you are the son or the daughter of the Most High God. Remember that you are an heir to all of the spiritual blessings. Remember that you have eternity coursing now through your veins. Remember you are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Remember that me and Jesus reside in you. Remember who you are. And magnify the Lord as a result. Because he has kept his promise as she speaks to these things. And she even connects it to the Abrahamic covenant, the great covenant that seems to hold all things together, right? And even Paul calls it in Galatians 3, the gospel. That some from every tongue, tribe, and nation would be blessed through this lineage, through this redemption. She picked up on that. And we should remember that as well, that God's desire is that not that Certain folks should be left out because of who and what they are. No, his desire to see them redeemed. Never forget Ezekiel 18, where God says, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked. Too many of us take pleasure in the death of the wicked. He does not. 
Now, is he just? Did I just become a universalist? No, I didn't. There is judgment, and that should grieve us. As Spurgeon says, you should never speak of hell without tears in your eyes. So it is important for us to remember, while there is redemption, there will be judgment. There will be a harsh reality for those who rebelliously reject outright. It's not that they can't, it's that they won't. They don't want to be. And so we have an opportunity to share with them. I had an incredible opportunity when I was in Macon. I was at uh, this, this coffee shop, and two old friends came in that I love dearly. Uh, and uh, they are now married, and they are um, of the same sex. And, uh, and so um, one of them came over to me, actually both ended up coming over to me, and we sat and talked for a long time, and, and um, one of them is, is, um, basically hasn't talked to a family in years, and it's, 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 it's a heavy, heavy burden on her. And I said to her, I said, have you gone to your family and said, it's okay for you to disagree with me? It's okay for you not to buy into the whole thing, lock, stock, and both making it. She was very tearful. I said, well, if you love them, you ought to go tell them that. And, and because it may be that you're separated apart because they think this is a zero-sum game. Right? And that's the trouble for so many of us on these issues that we're so tangled up in. We just only we see it as a false binary zero-sum game. Now, for those of you who are wondering, what? Is he doing math up there? Is that statistics? What that means is there's only one option. Either you do it my way, who sees through a glass half darkly, or you are out forever. As if we were God. So it was an incredible opportunity, and um, we exchanged emails, and so we're going to keep up with one another. And as they were leaving, they said, you know, she said, uh, Chris and I have always respected you because you. Um, you never made doubts, you never made um, uh, questions mean that you were out. And we miss you. Hold on, I miss you. So listen to what J.C. Ryle says about this portion of Mary's song. He says, let us learn from this holy woman's example to lay firm hold on Bible promises. It is the deepest of importance to our peace to do so. Promises are, in fact, the manna that we should daily eat and the water that we should daily drink as we travel through the wilderness of this world. That's a great quote. It is God's promises that we should be looking to and looking at how they're being fulfilled in and through us and in this world. Too often, we let all of the negative noise, the white noise, keep us from seeing all the good that God is doing. If you were to ask, I think, a, a large number of people, how's the church doing in America? Most of them would say, oh, is it still alive? I think it's close to dead by now. Well, the church is well alive. The gates of hell shall not prevail. There are people doing wonderful things you're never going to hear about that doesn't sell, and we don't buy. Whereas we would do good to share with each other how God is at work in our lives, just like Mary and Elizabeth did with each other, and just like Mary is doing with us now. We talk about too many banal things. We talk about too, many, too much of our differences. We talk about too much of stuff we think we're right about. I'm reading this book called In Defense of Food by Michael Pollan. I don't know if you've read it or not, and some of you may be thinking, oh, man, who, 
gonna be like this raging, uh, radical vegan omnivore spouting all this stuff. But what was troubling about this book is how we, how much we're lied to about it. It's like it's I picked the worst possible season in which to read this book following the election. Like I'm I'm totally lost. I don't I don't know what to do anymore. I don't even know what to eat. If you catch me foraging on the side of the roads, it's because I've lost my mind. I don't know. But it's just so troubling how much we are lied to and how much is spun and how much is, it's just, and so where do we look if not to God's promises, which is they're unchanging and they're being fulfilled and it is the thing that is true and most tangible and most powerful. So what are some ways in which God's faithful preservation of his people in Christ through his promises what are some ways in which that has blessed and humbled you? Great for you to kind of consider the bigger picture and how, again, you ought to read church history. It will both shake your faith to the core and teach you that God is sovereign. I don't know how the church survived the 13th and 14th century in Europe, but she did. I don't know how she survived the 80s in America, but she has, and she continues. And so... So take heart and make sure that you are hearing the story and that your soul has opportunity to magnify the Lord, both because of what he's doing in you and what he's doing in his people in this world. Both levels are necessary for that. So what do we learn from this passage? Two things. One, God's mercy and blessing to us through Christ makes him worthy to be magnified. It's very important. God's mercy and blessing to us through Christ makes him worthy to be magnified. Number two, God's faithful preservation of his people in Christ makes him worthy to be magnified. The fulfilling of his promises and the saving of us as individuals, is all of that makes him worthy to be magnified. Listen to what Art Kent Hughes says. He says, Jesus has turned the world on its head. Morally, he scatters the proud. Socially, he lifts the humble. And spiritually, he fills the hungry with good things. Therefore, let us magnify the Lord. Our question as we transition into the table this morning is, are you hungry? Are you hungry for the things of the Lord? Are you hungry for seeing the fulfillment of his promises? Are you hungry for his mercy and grace in your own life? One of the beauties of the table that he left for us is to remind us always of what he has done for us, and to use such simple elements so that we would not over-realize or think that it would, would require something more than just bread and a cup. And so as we come this morning, I, I want you to consider, are you hungry? Are you hungry for the things of the Lord? And do you recognize that he can fill you up, even more importantly? It is what he has done, and as you take time to remember those things will nourish and bless you. Is it that this bread does something magical? It's good bread. It's homemade. And I think it's made according to indefensive food, so you're not getting any sodium sorbate or whatever I can't pronounce. But there's nothing magical in the bread itself. What's supernatural, what's miraculous, is what Christ has done. And how that continues to sanctify us and leads us and points us toward glorification. As you take this morning, I want you to take time to consider and, and, and magnify the Lord. Now, you may be saying, 
I need to prepare. Well, if you are on our email list, we send you a preparatory letter, and hopefully you've done that by now. But let me just let you off a little bit of a hook. There's no way for you to take a moral inventory that's going to be thorough enough for us to get out of here by next Tuesday. Right? We're all such sinners that at some point what we have to do is say, Lord, I, I can't even keep score on that anymore. And I know you don't either in Christ. Amen. If the elders would go ahead and come forward, let us remember what it was that Christ said when he instituted the supper. He was eating a meal. And it was the last meal that he would have with them before he would suffer a brutal death and he would be resurrected. And even there was a sense in which he said some aspect of this will actually have to wait until the new heavens and the new earth. This is the last time I'll drink these, this with you. And so he takes bread, and as they're not really sure what's going on, he holds it up for them and says, listen, this bread, it represents my body, and it will be broken. And in him speaking of that broken bread, that broken body, what he was saying to them is, I will take on the fullness of your sin, past, present, and future. Oh, that's hard for us to get our heads around. Like there's times where you feel like, how can he have done? But remember, where we are in history, it was all future. It is past, present, and future. The totality of your sin over the whole of your lifetime, Christ absorbed into himself, took that burden upon him, and, and satiated God's wrath. That means there's nothing left. No wrath left for your sin. That is good news to you. You're not going to get to heaven and him say, yeah, I know you, ah, tough. There were some things you did there toward the end. I just, I don't know. Right? But there's some stuff you did in the middle that we didn't really talk about. And you're not in. That's not what he's going to do at all. In fact, what Christ has done for us is finished. And so as you Take the bread this morning. Give thanks. Magnify the Lord for the finishedness of His work. That His promises in Christ have been kept. And what's happening now is the unfolding of that keptness for us. We are getting to witness the unfolding of those promises in history between the now and the not yet. And for that, we should give thanks and we should have eyes wide open and ears attuned and hearts oriented. God, where are you doing these? Let me see your glory. And so, when you receive it, if you would hold it and we'll take together as family, let me pray for the bread and for us. Father, thank you for the broken body of Christ and, and all of the promises that are fulfilled just in that aspect of this table. I thank you that you, you exhausted your wrath on him so that we would not have to taste of the cup of wrath and that what we would instead endure is discipline, which is from a loving father not eternal judgment. God, help us to be humble and receive where it is necessary your discipline, your correction. Help us to see that being wrong is not the worst thing in the world. Help us to be nourished by this bread so that we could tell coming generations this great story and magnify you, our Lord, the God of our salvation, who has done good things in and through us. And we pray for this in Christ's name. Amen.